Morning, Disciples Church. My name is Phil. It's my privilege and honor to uh, read scripture this morning. Uh, we'll be reading 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 through 5. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the, and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Phil, and good morning, everyone. Welcome to Disciples Church this morning. It is great to see you, and we are incredibly glad that you have joined us in worship today. My name is Dave Hahn, and it is my privilege always to open up God's Word with and for you. So one of the first questions that we ask someone when we first meet them is, what do you do? Sometimes we ask that question before we ask their name. And that speaks volumes, I think, about what we value as people. But it hasn't always been that way. In other times and places, including during Jesus' day, people were known by their ancestry, who their family was. Jesus, as a for instance, was a very common name at the time. It's actually the English equivalent to Joshua. So think of all the Joshes that you know. There's one in this room, at least one in this room. So, As a result, people used surnames or last names, names that were added for descriptive purposes and to further identify someone. So Jesus' last name is not Christ. He doesn't have a family of Christs that he was born from. Jesus is, of course, his first name, but Christ is his title. And the surname Christ became a manner of identification in the Gospels and among the church. It means anointed one. Among those who first knew Jesus, he was called Jesus of Nazareth. You find that all throughout the Gospels. Identifying him based on the town that he was from. Or he would have potentially been called Jesus bar Joseph, identifying him by who his father was. The word bar meaning son of in Hebrew and Joseph being his earthly father. Now in scripture, we also know that Jesus was known as a carpenter or a tradesperson, but even that was not his primary identity. So not where he was from, not who his father was, not even his trade necessarily. Over time, surnames have grown more common in that they continue to help identify people in one of four ways. Parentage, meaning their family, location, occupation, and sometimes nicknames. 
Last names like Underwood or York are location-based, highlighting something specific about the region or the city that an individual came from. Last names like Knight or King indicate some kind of royal status somewhere along the way, so that's fun. A name like John Stevenson is parental in nature and is similar, actually, to a name like Jesus Bar Joseph. You know, John. Which John? John Stevenson. It sounds like a joke, but that's it. Names like Taylor, Baker, and Smith are clear examples of surnames rooted in a family's occupation. And finally, last names like Longfellow or Little are good examples of nickname-based surnames, and it likely means that you had some extraordinary height or lack thereof in your family. Regardless, though, of our surnames, the time and the place that you and I currently live means that we likely have our identities wrapped up in our work. We see what we do as a major piece of who we are. And actually, when we retire, we struggle to know who we are anymore. But is that how God sees things? Our world may look upon certain vocations as more important or more noble than others. Even we in the church may teach or believe that certain vocations are more sacred than others. But what we find actually in the Word of God is that what we do for a living and how we spend our days isn't nearly as important as the manner in which we go about doing it. What we do isn't nearly as important as the manner in which we go about doing it. Not in God's eyes. In God's view, there is no such thing as an insignificant vocation. There is no divide between the sacred and the secular, especially when it comes to how we spend our days and make a living. For the Christian, everything Everything is sacred. Listen to Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Paul writes, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Whatever you do. Whatever you do whether that be factory worker or CEO, truck driver or business owner, salesman or congressman, drive through attendant or pastor, you name it. It all matters to God and it is all useful for his kingdom to the degree that we work heartily as for the Lord, as we just read, and we seek to love and serve him in it. That's what matters. So let's look again at verses 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy 6 that Phil read for us. Verse 1, let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. 
Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. So before we get into the detail of these two verses, I think we have to address the two potential stumbling blocks before us. The word slave and the word master. Our nation's history means that our connotation of those two words is likely negative. Extraordinarily negative. But our nation's history has little to nothing in common with what the Bible means when it uses those words. So when you read the word slave here, don't picture desperate people in ragged clothing and ankle chains being whipped as they work tirelessly. That is not what is happening in these texts. Friends, in the Middle Eastern and Roman world of Jesus' day, masters were akin to employers. And slaves were usually self-sold. Meaning, they took it upon themselves to offer their services to someone who would hire them, whether that be so that they could pay off a debt that they owed to make their living or to be taken care of when they could not take care of themselves. And the masters treated their slaves oftentimes like family, feeding them and clothing them and caring for them as their own. Very different than what we think of when we hear those words. The word slave, as used in the Bible, is the word doulos, and it appears approximately 150 times. Now, in some translations, the word doulos or slave is translated as bondservant. So depending on what Bible you read, it actually may say bondservant rather than slave. Now, the apostles, Paul, Peter, James, and Jude, all in their letters identify themselves as douloi, the plural of doulos, of Jesus himself. They were all thought of themselves as slaves to Christ. The letter that Paul wrote to Philemon focuses in part on a man named Onesimus. And Onesimus was Philemon's slave that Paul converted to Christ. And it is important to note that Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon to finish his obligation as a slave. He sent him back to finish what he had been obligated to do. So while we do not find the Bible commanding slavery, it does permit it, and it certainly regulates it, both in its terms as well as in treatment of one another. As a, for instance, slaves had the opportunity to break their agreement as early as every six years. It was their choice. But honestly, many of them did not leave because of how well they were treated and cared for. Additionally, the Bible never actually instructs masters to free their slaves, and it only instructs slaves to leave their masters if it suited them and they were able to fend for themselves. 
So, when you ask the question, why doesn't the Bible take a harder stance on or disapprove of slavery, it is because, in part, the large majority of slaves were not unwilling or mistreated servants, and their race had nothing to do with their position. They were not unwilling. They were not mistreated. And the race had nothing to do with their position the majority of the time. There were slaves who were captured as part of war. They became captives of war and they were treated as slaves. So there's not a lot of willingness there. But for the most part, most slaves that you read about in scripture, as you hear it, understand it as being a willing servant who was treated well and was able to leave after six years if they chose to. And where there were problems, Within the economic system of slaves and masters, the word of God made clear that social revolution was not the answer to the problem, but that spiritual revolution was. Social revolution was not the answer. Spiritual revolution was. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition of, in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave to Christ. Both slaves and free men were told to remain where they were if that is where God had them. Because a Christian is a Christian no matter what their circumstance. And God has a purpose and a plan wherever he puts us. Wherever he puts us. Even more than that, everyone who is in Christ is a slave to Christ. And they all have a call on their lives to serve him in all they do, both slaves and masters. And all who are in Christ have the same capital M, Master. In Colossians 4.1 we read, Masters, Treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Ephesians 6.9 says, Masters, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. And then in Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, social and gender and racial structures still exist and have an extraordinary purpose in this world. But as Christians, our primary identity is no longer found in any of these things, but in Christ. Okay, Dave, we get it. 
but what does this have to do with me? I'm not a slave. I'm not a master. True? But all of us are either in authority or under authority. And isn't that what being a slave and a master is all about? How do we love and honor God when under authority? And how do we love and honor God when we have it? How do we love and honor God when we're under authority? And how do we love and honor him when we have it? Perhaps the most accurate modern application of our text today is in the context of employer and employee. But it is also applicable in any relationship where we find ourselves answerable or accountable to someone. Employer or employee, certainly. Teacher or student. Parent or child. Leader or volunteer. And this idea gets tricky when, because of our faith, we as believers feel superior to a non-believer who has authority over us, or when we don't feel the need to honor someone with authority because they're a fellow Christian. And the church in Ephesus was clearly struggling in these areas, and that is why Paul addressed it. Verse 2 finishes with, teach and urge these things. See, Paul wasn't looking to tear down the economic system of slaves and masters, but to transform the relationships within the system in the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, the systems and the structures of this world are rarely the root problem, whether it be the government or the workplace, the family or otherwise. The root problem most often is that those systems and structures are filled with sinful and broken people like you and me. That's the problem. And it is the hearts of the people within them that need renewal. And when hearts are made new in Christ, behaviors inevitably change and systems inevitably improve. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, said it this way, Jesus Christ did not come to dissolve the bond of civil relations, but to transform and strengthen them. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 through the lens of being one under authority as an employee or otherwise. As those under authority in verse 1, we are told to honor those in authority. Why? So that, according to the second part of that verse, the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Why honor? Why as a slave honor your master? Why, as an employee, honor your employer? Why, as a child, honor your parents? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. As always, it is God's glory that is the main thing and what we need to be after. So we honor God and his word by showing honor to our employers and those in authority over us. And not just those that we deem worthy of that honor or to those that we like. There is no, but my boss is a jerk out clause. There is no, but my boss doesn't love Jesus out clause either. And if your employer or your authority figure does love Jesus 
and is in fact part of the family of God. The command to honor and serve them well is expected all the more because they are family. Fellow Christians are called to outdo one another in honor and to bless one another, seeing the other as more important than themselves. My friends, our kinship in God's family increases our obligation to serve one another, just as Christ served you and I unto the point of death, though we did not deserve it. So where does our ability to serve one another that way come from? By looking to the one who gave his life for us, served us unto the point of death while we were his enemies, and knowing that that same one lives inside you and me. Now kids, you're hearing a lot of boss and employer talk, and so you're probably checked out, but while most of you do not have bosses yet, It is coming. And until that day comes, you still have teachers and you still have parents and grandparents. And so you are able to honor God by listening to, obeying, and doing well for them. And no matter who our employer, teacher, or authority is, based on the fact that they have authority because God gave them that authority and that ultimately it is God we are serving as we serve and honor them, we should work hard and work well for them as for the Lord. So, Disciples Church, Are we reflecting Jesus and pointing people to him in our workplaces and our schools? Because for most of us, it is those places that we spend the most amount of time. Have you ever thought about that? It is in those places that we spend the most amount of our time with the most amount of people. Unless you've just got an enormous family. For most of us, Our workplace or our school is our primary mission field, and God has put us there for a reason. And they are reasons that go beyond how they benefit us. God has put us in those places to serve the greater good, and he has put us there to be salt and light to a lost and a dying world. Do you believe that? And do you live that way? That your work is not accidental. That what you do for a living and where you work and who is around you is a divine idea. And it is a mission field of people who need to be encouraged in Christ and those who need to know him. So in what you say and in what you do for those eight plus hours a day, are you a city on a hill? Allowing the light of Christ to shine in and through you. Are you salt of the earth, preserving and adding flavor to the lives of those around you? If you are depending upon Jesus and abiding in him, you both can and will do those things. Because it is the life of Christ in us that shines brightly and adds flavor and protects against the corruption of sin and of death. So as we've seen all throughout 1 Timothy, the church of Ephesus had false teachers within it. 
Teachers who stepped outside of what God's word and the instructions of Jesus Christ, his son, had commanded, including, but not exclusively, how God would have us work and honor those in authority, the stuff we just talked about. But now here in verses 3 and 5, we find Paul creating a bridge between verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6 and really the whole theme of this letter. Listen to verses 3 and 5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So we have obviously talked a lot over the last few months about false teachers. Back in chapter 4, we had said that false teachers show themselves in two ways. First, in what they teach, and secondarily, how they live. You can identify false teachers by what they teach, but also in how they live. And that's what the Bible in 1 Timothy is talking about when it talks about godliness. Godliness is a word that means God-likeness. So we need to be mindful of both, what, we t- what they teach and how they live. Now, let me ask you this question. As you have heard the term false teachers... How many of you have imagined that the ones that Paul is referring to are those like me who are standing behind a pulpit or in front of a congregation of some kind? How many of you have imagined it that way? Because certainly Paul does mean people like me, those who would stand behind a pulpit, those who would stand in front of a congregation, but his scope is much, much bigger than just them. There is a word in verse 3 that is important to pay attention to, and it is the word anyone. When the Bible is talking about false teachers here in 1 Timothy or anywhere else, it is referring to anyone. From those in the pulpit, to the authors that you're reading, to the one who's teaching your Bible study, to the person that you're having a casual spiritual conversation with. Beware of anyone who teaches doctrine that differs from what we have been given in the word of God. Anyone. Jonathan and myself included. And where we believe that there may be false teaching, let me encourage you to assume the best of that person. After all, it is possible that you have misunderstood them. So ask questions of that person. Seek to clarify what concerns you. And if after doing so it becomes clear that you have not misunderstood and that their teaching is false, do not sit idly by. Push back as needed and contend for the gospel and its doctrine as revealed in God's holy word for their sake and for the sake of anyone who would hear them. My friends, the most dangerous form of false teaching is not open and obvious opposition. In the same way that the devil isn't going to appear red with horns and a pitchfork. It's much more subtle than that. 
Rather, the most difficult way to identify false teaching is when it takes twists and turns that appear to honor God's word, but really misuse and misunderstand it. Twists and turns that appear to honor God's word, but in reality misuse and misunderstand it. Adding a little bit here, taking a little bit there. Do you realize that for 1,300 plus years, the, only the very few had personal access to God's word in a language that they understood. But now, thanks to men like John Wycliffe and Martin Luther and Johann Gutenberg and others, the word of God is available to all of us. And God's Holy Spirit teaches us what it says and what it means. So there is no longer an excuse to be misled by false teachers of any kind. That is amazing. Friends, ultimately the way to recognize something as false is to be highly familiar with what is authentic and true, as we have talked about. So when we are taught, we need to look into God's word for ourselves. But foundationally, we ultimately have to care more about what God says than what man says or what ultimately makes us feel good. I don't care how good it makes you feel. I don't care who that person is. If it does not line up with the word of God, it must be rejected. So in the next three verses, Paul actually gives us three reasons why false teachers do what they do. Conceit, a lack of understanding, and an unhealthy craving for controversy and arguments over words. In other words, pride, stupidity, and argumentativeness. That's why false teachers do what they do. Pride, stupidity, and an argumentativeness. They believe that they know more than God, proving that they actually know nothing. And they are willing to argue with both you and God about it. But hear me on this. Debate and discussion done with humility before God and others is a good and godly thing. And we are living in a time where honest debate and honest dialogue is a rare thing. We feel triggered, we feel threatened. We hardly know how to disagree with one another anymore and still love that person but we need to learn how to do it, relearn how to do it if we've lost it. We want healthy, good, humble, godly debate to mark us as a church. And at the same time, we want to be a church that rejects any teaching or discussion that flows from conceit or pride. And where we allow pride, stupidity, and argumentativeness in our churches, according to verses 4 and 5 of today's text, we should expect envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. In other words, expect a lifting up of false teachers and a tearing down of those who teach truth. Expect division rather than unity in Christ. When you allow pride, 
and stupidity and argumentativeness in, you can expect that false teachers are going to be raised up, truth tellers are going to be torn down, and there will be all kinds of division among you. So from whom then should we expect these things? Well, verse 5 tells us, people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. The unrenewed and the non-transformed who in heart and mind are at war against God himself. In other words, unbelievers. Unbelievers. Now perhaps the most insidious byproduct of false teachers and those who listen is found at the end of verse 5. And it says, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Going to God or using God for what you can get rather than for God himself. Jesus was extraordinarily gracious and kind in what he provided those who asked him and those who did not. But Jesus also had hard words for those who only followed him for what he could do and what he gave. Those who followed him for his stuff, whether it be healings when they were sick or food when they were hungry. So when we as the church position Jesus as a fix-all to whatever ails someone, or a cosmic Santa Claus who is ready and willing to grant your biggest dreams and your most longed-for wishes, we not only misunderstand God ourselves, but we misrepresent him to others. We misunderstand God ourselves and we misrepresent him to others. The call to love, serve, and follow Jesus Christ begins and ends with the fact that he is God and he is enough. That he truly is worthy of the praise, adoration, and glory we give him. So if you come to Jesus for what he can give you, you get frustrated with him, or you doubt him, or you abandon him when he doesn't give you what you want, when you want it, or how you want it, you have demonstrated that it is that thing, whatever it is, that you truly worship. If you come to Jesus for what he gives you, and you get frustrated with him or doubt him or abandon him when he doesn't give it to you, when you want it, how you want it, what you have shown is idolatry. That thing is God to you, not God. So my friends, ask yourselves, will I follow or continue to follow Jesus Christ even if he doesn't make me healthy, wealthy, and wise? Or more practically, even if he doesn't fix my marriage, even if he doesn't change my kids, even if I don't get a raise, and even if my suffering does not end, will you still follow? If not, it is likely that it was never Jesus who you followed. Christians must be more concerned with what pleases and glorifies God than they are what pleases and glorifies them. 
And the prize that awaits we who are in Christ, the prize that should most excite us is unending intimate union with him. He's what we get. Is that where you are? Is Jesus enough for you? Are you his disciple no matter what life brings you? So we are having our first membership class at the end of this month. And I remember hearing a story about a local church's first membership class. This story has always stuck with me. And it is this. After people had gathered in this membership class, the pastor went around the room and he asked everyone to give their name and say what they did for a living. And when it came time for one young woman to answer these questions for herself, she goes, me? Well, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as a factory worker. What an answer. Friends, this is what it looks like to be a child of God and disciple of the truth. And this is what it looks like to be in full-time ministry regardless of your vocation. And it is what every Christian is called to. So beginning today, put yourself in her shoes. Say to yourself, say about yourself, I am a child of God and disciple of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as fill in the blank. An engineer, a nurse, a salesman, a technician, a police officer, a stay-at-home mom, or a student. According to God's perfect and holy word, Jesus Christ was born in the flesh to a virgin to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died, and to give us eternal life and righteousness that we could never earn. Disciples Church, it is when we are convinced of this truth, the truth of Jesus, and have rooted our whole identity in him, that our vocations take their right and proper place. And we can find joy in honoring and serving one another because we know that in doing so, we are honoring and serving God himself. And that's the point of the Christian life. That is the point of the Christian life. Worshiping, serving, and glorifying God in Christ wherever we are and whatever we do in both spirit and in truth. That's what the Father is seeking. Seeking no other benefit or gain for ourselves, but everything unto him who loved us, gave himself for us, and promises to return one day to take us to where he is. Let's pray. Beloved Father, would you help us today to expect you as we travel the ordinary roads of life, not asking for 
sensational experiences or sensational gifts? Would you fellowship with us through our everyday work and service and be our companion when we take an ordinary journey? Let our humble lives be transformed by your presence. Mountaintop experiences and wonderful communications with the unseen world are not promised to us, but a daily life of communion with you is, and it is enough. You will give us those times of exceptional revelation if it is the right thing for us. But would you help us to be faithful wherever you have us in all that we do, seeing everything as sacred? Remind us of our humble Christ who served all, even unto death on a cross, and then let us serve even our enemies in the same way in him. Let our lives honor you as we honor those with authority over us. We are bond servants to you, O God. Let it be our joy to be so. Attune our eyes and our ears and our hearts and minds to the truth of your word, and by your spirit, alert us to what is erroneous and false. Help us crave what is good and beautiful and true and to reject that which is a lie and steals life rather than gives it. Father, may we love and follow you because you are God and you are good and you are enough. In you we find our satisfaction and are complete. And if we have nothing else but have you, we have everything. All else apart from you is nothing. Be glorified as we live the lives that you have put before us and make us mindful of those you have put in our midst. Help us to pray for them, to love them, and reflect Jesus unto them. Then, by grace and through faith, let their hearts and minds come alive to Christ, setting their course for heaven where you are. We love, honor, and praise you, Lord. And it is for Christ's beautiful name, his sake, and your glory that we pray. Amen.